0: Next week, we're beginning a sermon series. We're going to call this sermon series Uncomfortable, and we're going to be looking at some of the things that Jesus said in the Bible that make us uncomfortable, like forgiving people 70 times seven, and get thee behind me, Satan, things like that. So just know that that's starting next week. This week, um, the point of my sermon this morning is really to hopefully cast some vision for you, the people of Seven Hills Fellowship, for 2023. Now, you heard various people this morning mention some bits and pieces of our vision. You know, Jeff talked a little bit about how we want to be a church that is working towards the flourishing of our city, right? And so, what that means is we want to be a presence for good in our community. And when we say good, um, one of the ways that Jesus meant that was sort of this concept of the kingdom of God. What is good is where the effects of the fall relational, psychological, emotional, spiritual, those effects are undone. So we want to be a church that is actually working to heal those wounds of brokenness in our community. And then you also heard Jeff uh, talk a little bit about the goal of the pathway to flourishing. The goal of the pathway to flourishing is we want to create, uh, or at least do our part to see that God creates in you lifelong, mature, and equipped followers of Christ. And so those are a couple bits, pieces of the puzzle. The piece of the puzzle that I'm going to try to put in place today is I'm going to say that the starting point for flourishing is really this idea that we call the gospel. And so that's really going to be the theme of this morning's sermon is the gospel. We'll jump into that in just a moment. But before we do, let me take a moment and let's pray. Father, thank you for each of the people that are here this morning, Father, in the rain, with sicknesses all over the place, Father, with busy schedules. But I thank you, Father, that they are here not by accident, But rather, they are here by your invitation. They're here, Father, because you've drawn them to this place. And so, Father, I pray that whatever it is that you would have for each of these people to receive from you this morning, Father, that they would um, open up their hearts, that they would open up their minds, that they would open up their lives to you and to your Holy Spirit, that you might change them. Father, I pray that no one would be able to leave this place this morning without having had a life-changing encounter with you the living god father i pray all these things in the name of your son jesus christ amen so what should your life be about in 2023 what should your life be about in 2023 what should your sort of true north be for 2023 it may be that you've already made some new year's resolutions or a new year's resolution maybe your new resolution is to eat better and work out more that'd be a pretty good new year's resolution nothing wrong with that Maybe you've made a resolution to read more physical books and to be on social media less. I would argue that also probably would be a pretty good resolution. Books, by the way, for those of you under 30, are these things made of paper. They have pages. They're very interesting. Anyway, they smell great. Anyway, maybe your new resolution is less about those things. Maybe it's more moral in nature. Maybe your goal is to be kinder and to be more generous. I actually watched a podcast recently when I couldn't sleep by this guy who is a neurologist, and uh, someone asked him the question. They said, what are women really looking for in a mate? And the guy said, of all of my studies, what I've been able to uh, observe is it's not about shoulder-to-waist ratio. It's not about intelligence or earning potential. It's about kindness. And, and this is a totally secular guy, and I was like, wow, that's a pretty, that's good to know. That's good information. So, if that's your New Year's resolution, that's good too. Maybe your New Year's resolution is um, to exercise your no muscle, right? Maybe some of us in this room have a hard time saying no to people. We always say yes. We always sort of, you know, just are always sort of at the whim of somebody else's needs or desires. And maybe what you're sort of resolving to do this year is to say no to more things so that you can say yes to the most important things. Maybe instead of thinking these initiatives through yourself, maybe what you've done is offload some of these decisions to influencers. There's absolutely no shortage of people in this world who are willing to advise you on what your life should be about in 2023. Let me give you some examples. Joe Rogan, I think we have a picture up here, tells people that psilocybin and psychedelics might be the answer. I think there's a mushroom on the page. I can't remember if psilocybin comes from mushrooms or from licking frogs. I'm not sure. Somebody can correct me later. Now, interestingly, he would also recommend working out and eating a good diet. So, you know, we can get on board with those things. Greta Thunberg, some of you guys are familiar with Greta. Um, she probably would recommend that your goal this 2023 might be to limit your carbon footprint, right? For her, global warming due to carbon emissions is the most pressing issue that all of humanity faces. Jordan Peterson, he's probably on the picture, on the, the, the uh, screen behind me too, he advises people to begin by cleaning their room, right? Whatever you do, start there. Clean your room. His is unapologetically a message of personal responsibility. Ibram X. Kendi, some of you guys are familiar with Ibram X. Kendi, he believes that we should begin by becoming anti racist. That's clearly the telos of his life and clearly the telos of his message. Elon Musk seems to be advocating for free speech absolutism, if you guys are familiar with that terminology. In other words, you know, we should be able to speak freely all the time you know, in every way. That's why he purportedly bought Twitter. Megan Rapino, if you're familiar with Megan Rapino, her message would be about LGBTQ plus rights and gender equity. Again, there's any number of influencers that are more than willing to tell you what your life should be about in 2023. Now, the list that I just covered and their recommendations to you and to me goes on and on and on, right? We could talk about all sorts of other influencers out there. And if we're honest with ourselves, I think we have to admit that often we're more influenced by them than we are by Jesus. Let me say that one more time. I think often we're more influenced by them. CNN, Fox News, Joe Rogan, whoever, all of these people, we're more influenced by them than we are by Jesus. Each of the influencers that I just mentioned either intuitively or philosophically begin their advocacy with an assumption. They have a set of assumptions or a set of beliefs that something is wrong in the world and needs to be set right. That's what each of them is doing. And I would actually argue that each of them are right about certain things. Every single one of those people up there actually has some very good points. And they're wrong about other things as well, just like I'm wrong about other things as well. Here at Seven Hills Fellowship today, the question is this. The question is, what does God have to teach us about who we should be and about how we should respond to the brokenness of this world, right? What does God have to say through Scripture? My first point is this. First of all, the Bible is very clear about the reality of brokenness. All those influencers agree with this. There's brokenness in the world. It needs to be made right. What does the Bible have to say about this brokenness? Let me jump in really quickly. So I have a 1984 Uh, sorry, 85 Ford F-250. I think it's on the screen. I took a picture with my iPhone, so that's a a picture from an iPhone. We nicknamed her Fanny because she's got kind of a big back end. That's just, I don't know, how many years ago we made that decision? Some of Fanny's brokenness is very obvious. If you walked up to Fanny, you would take a look at her and you'd see that her tires are bald. That's a problem. Her exterior is 50% paint and 50% rust and almost all of that is covered by a thin layer of mildew. One of the two cables that holds up the tailgate is broken, and if you look under Fanny, there's always a suspicious puddle of oil beneath her wherever she goes. If you turn the key, it'll take a minute for her uh, to get started, and even when she does start and you begin to drive her, you'll you'll realize that the turn signals don't work. I mean, the list of her brokenness Ex, you know, external brokenness goes on and on and on. Those are just the things that are visible to the naked eye. Of course, there are also any number of different uh, aspects of her brokenness that are somewhat less visible. They're more invisible. There's a rear oil, uh, there's a real rear oil seal leak. That's a problem. Uh, there's a slow leak in the radiator, so every single time I take the cap off, I need to add water to it. If you drive her too long, she'll overheat. And until we fixed it there was a leak in the power steering pump which made turning fanny a mini workout in and of itself i could go on again and and again and on and on about all the different uh, invisible things that are broken with her it's impossible to look at our 1985 ford f-250 and not realize that she is far from who she was when she rolled off the assembly line in 1985. in the same way when we look at the world and when we look at ourselves we know that something is wrong. We know that something or many things are broken. Like Neo and the Matrix, we can see it and we can feel it. The world is not as it should be and neither are we. This is part of the problem that Scripture points us to. The Bible actually talks about brokenness in a number of different ways. In Genesis chapter 3, the Bible tells a story about Adam and Eve choosing self-sufficiency over trusting in the goodness of God. The Bible is clear that out of their decision flowed an all-encompassing brokenness or total depravity, as theologians have called it. Some of that brokenness, like with our old F-250, is immediately and obviously evident. Humans grow old. No debate about that. Our joints become stiff our eyes become weak. I'm actually wearing bifocals right now. I'm 51. I had my birthday not too long ago. And so part of aging is that all of a sudden your eyes don't work like they used to. Our memories begin to fail. We're plagued with disease and inevitably our bodies wear out and we die. No one escapes that. Some of the brokenness of sin, however, is less visible and it's more invisible, but it's still all too real. Some of that brokenness is psychological. psychological. Again, many of us in this room are very familiar with the tortures of psychological brokenness. Sometimes it's relational brokenness. Again, many of us in this room are familiar with the relational brokenness. And sometimes it's, well, it's always spiritual brokenness. It's always this idea of being separated from God, right, and feeling that separation from Him. That's part of our day-to-day reality of our brokenness. And just for a point of reference, let's look again at Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. And in this passage, we see God describing that brokenness to Satan, to Adam, and to Eve. I'm going to read these verses, and I've read them pretty recently. He says this, "'And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers,' He, that is the serpent or Satan, will, will crush, no, sorry, that is Adam or the new Adam, Jesus, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. But what's being talked about there is spiritual brokenness, right? Verse 16, to the woman, now he's, God is speaking to Eve, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. That's actually vocational and it's physical. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. That's relational, that's psychological brokenness. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you, that's physical. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return from the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you will return, that's vocational, it's psychological, and it's physical brokenness all there together. And then in verse 23, so the Lord God banished him, that is uh, Adam, from the Garden of Eden, that's that separation from God, it's spiritual brokenness. In other words, right there at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, right there at the beginning of the Bible, what God does is He paints a picture of our brokenness. It's all-encompassing. It's spiritual, it's psychological, it's physical, it's vocational, it's relational. The bad news, which precedes any good news, is that we are far more broken and flawed than we ever imagined. Let me say that one more time. The bad news that precedes the good news is that we're actually far more broken than we realize. The tentacles of sin and corruption have worked their way into every aspect of our human experience. The problem is worse than we thought. The Bible uses other imagery to describe brokenness. It uses metaphor as well. Uh, It uses the concept of idolatry to help us understand our brokenness. An idol is anything we look to for satisfaction, happiness, or security other than God. Let me say that one more time. An idol is anything we look to for our satisfaction, happiness, and security other than God. It's taking a good thing, sports, marriage, children, work, it's taking a good thing, but it's making it an ultimate thing, your most important thing. And it isn't necessarily that we love the wrong things. There's nothing wrong with loving our children, our wives, or our jobs. It's that we love things in the wrong order. Loving golf or work more than our uh, families is going to lead to chaos. It's when we love those things more than we love our children, again, that more chaos ensues. Augustine rightly argued that it's only when we love God more than anything else that all those other loves fall into proper order. Any other order of our loves is idolatry, and idols, again, sports, academics, work, marriage, any idol is never built to bear the weight of divinity. It just can't do it. Those things are all broken cisterns which cannot hold the water that we seek to place in them. Now, the Bible also uses other ways of helping us understand brokenness. It uses the term exile. It uses the term slavery. Exile describes the longing that each of us feels for our true home, right? We all kind of know that feeling. It's this longing. It's this desire for our true home. Maybe the way that you experience it is a desire for rest. Maybe the way you experience it is a desire for connection of your husband and your kids, right? But it's, it's exile. We're not where we should be. We all know intuitively that we're not only not where we should be, but we also know that we're not who we are supposed to be, right? That's where the theme of slavery then comes in. We're slaves to food. We're slaves to sex, to social media, to video games, to alcohol, to exercise, to depression, to anxiety. Those things that enslave us keep us from experiencing our full humanity. And worse yet, they destroy our very humanity, As the indigo girls sang in their 1985 hit, Prince of Darkness, this is a 1985 theme today, no one can convince me we aren't gluttons for our doom. In other words, we as humans constantly turn to these things that destroy our humanity, and they destroy the lives of the people we love. The problem of brokenness, again, is more serious and it's more pervasive than we realize. Now, obviously, obviously, we could go on and on about the problem of brokenness, and the ways in which Scripture talks about it, but we really do need to move on at this point. So, I think the next question is, how have humans historically responded to the awareness of this all-encompassing brokenness? And I want to propose the following answer, which I by no means came up with, right? Uh, Sam and Levi read about it this morning in the story of the prodigal son, and really the answer, as I first understood it, came from Tim Keller. We'll get there in a minute. But basically what Keller says is the way that we respond to this brokenness is really through two things, two ways. We respond in religious ways, and we respond in irreligious ways. Religious ways and irreligious ways. This may seem like an odd answer to the question, but bear with me. In his book, Center Church, Tim Keller writes the following. The gospel, again, that's the theme of this message today, the gospel has two equal and opposite enemies. The ancient church father Tertullian is reputed to have said, just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel is ever crucified between these two errors. What are these errors to which Tertullian was referring? I often call them religion and irreligion. The theological terms are legalism and antinomianism. Another way to describe them could be moralism, and relativism. This is from Tim Keller Center Church. Let's begin with the problem of religion as a way to respond to the brokenness of the world. For those of you who have ever studied history, studied religion, you'll know that the oldest religions that we know of were all attempts to bring order to the chaos of life by appeasing the gods. Most of these religions made sacrifices, often child sacrifices, human sacrifices to the gods of rain, to the gods of fertility, the gods of war, among others. What were they trying to do? They were essentially ways of trying to to control the outcome of their lives by bribing the deities in various ways. That's what they were doing. Religion as such is always a quid pro quo proposition. If I do X, then I expect Y from the deity, right? And so we can easily plug our own formulas in there. If I go to church, if I have my quiet time, if I tithe, then God will give me a husband or a wife, a good family, the job that I want. Now, if I don't get what I desire, reign, child, victory, or that job that I long for, then it must be because I've failed in some way. I haven't been good enough, or my sacrifice wasn't good enough. Again, we're talking about the ways in which humanity has responded to the brokenness of the world. What's the problem with the religious way of relating this way to the world and to God? There are, there's actually a long list, but I'm going to give you three, right? And again, I think you can probably pay attention to these and see to what degree they're at play in your own lives. Number one, typically be, the energy behind a religious worldview is fear and insecurity. Fear and insecurity you can perform a quick diagnostic on yourself using this measurement. Do you ever wonder if you've done enough to earn or to maintain God's pleasure? Have I, have I tithed enough? Have I read my Bible enough? Have I been good enough? That's the way we think about ourselves often in relationship to God, and we think that if we've done enough of those things, we think, okay, well, you know, God's okay with me now. But if you think you haven't done enough of those things, then you live in fear and insecurity that you haven't done enough. Do you fear that your standing with God is based upon your latest performance? Do you fear that because last night you did X, whatever X was, that now your relationship with God is in jeopardy? If your way of approaching God and the world is through a religious paradigm, then you will remain in a constant state of fear and insecurity with God. In His book, Grace Changes Everything, that's the, uh, the study that we're getting ready to do in lots of our groups here, we see Keller writing this. He says that in a religious paradigm, our, and I quote, self view swings between two poles. If and when I am living up to my standards, I feel confident, but then I am prone to be proud and unsympathetic to failing people. If and when I am not living up to my standards, I feel humble but not confident. I feel like a failure. Many of us can very quickly plug ourselves in and go, man, I I think I do wrestle with fear and insecurity around God. What's wrong with the way in which I'm approaching Him? That's number one. Number two, a second mark of religion is anger. A religious framework is always accompanied by an underlying anger. I know this firsthand. Years ago, my long-term accountability group, this is these guys I've been with for 30 years, they voted me the person that they would least like to fight. I'll just let that sink in for a minute I'm five foot eight I've got glasses right I'm not a threatening person it's not so much because I'm some big or strong guy or because I'm skilled at Jiu-Jitsu or Karate I'm not but it's because they said that I had this sort of ever-present subterranean rage it's true and I could tell you stories of playing soccer that probably would indicate this rage Now, at the time, I didn't really understand why they said that. I didn't really even believe them. I thought their diagnosis was incorrect. But now, years later, I can actually see that they were right, far more right than I wanted to admit. In the group, I was the legalist. I was the moralist. I was the Pharisee. I was the older brother who believed that God accepted me not because of Jesus' sacrifice, but because of my good behavior and my fanatical obedience, right? That's that's, even though I wouldn't have put that in, I wouldn't have filled the blank that way on the test. It's what I actually really believed about how God related to me and I related to Him. And so when things went wrong in life, I was furious with myself for not being good enough, or maybe I was furious with God because I felt like He was somehow being unfair. Again, to quote Keller from Grace Changes Everything. When circumstances in life go wrong, I am angry with God or myself since I believe that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life religious people are often marked by anger by fear and by insecurity one last mark religious people are also marked by judgmentalism since a religious worldview creates an identity and self-worth that are based upon hard work effort and morality religious people inevitably look down upon those that they believe are lazy or immoral think about the church lady from saturday night live Again, I realize there are lots of 1980s references here, but there is YouTube, so you can go look that up. Or Albert Molina in the movie Chocolat or the book Chocolat, if you remember, he was this judgmental legalistic mayor. Or Inspector Javert in Les Mis. Right? There are all these different characters that we know intuitively. These are the legalists. These are the older brothers. They're the ones who are judgmental all the time. Or think about Jesus' parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee in the temple, in which the Pharisee looks down with condescension upon the tax collector, believing that somehow he is better because of his righteousness, right? And so, all of these three things are ways in which we could diagnose whether or not we're approaching the world and God through this religious worldview. One way people have tried to deal with the brokenness of the world is through religion, but unfortunately, religion doesn't work. God actually sees through it. In religion, we aren't loving God, we're simply loving ourselves. Let me say that one more time. In religion, we're not loving God for His sake, we're loving ourselves for our sake. And ultimately, religion makes matters worse through those things. I just mentioned anger, judgmentalism, fear, and insecurity. Okay, so that's one one way in which we've related to the brokenness of the world, we've related to God, is through religion, trying to bribe God. What about the problem of irreligion as a way to engage the brokenness of the world? Irreligion. Here's the problem with irreligion. If religion is essentially a way to be our own savior, if you will, then irreligion is a way to be our own lord. Let me say that one more time. If religion is essentially a way to be our own savior, then irreligion is a way to be our own lord, to be in charge. In other words, those who embrace an irreligious worldview seek to set themselves up as the standard of what is true, and false good and evil they essentially place themselves upon the throne that only rightly belongs to god and they seek to live their lives however they see fit this was the sin of adam and eve recorded in genesis 3 where we read satan tempting them towards that very end let me read beginning in verse 4 of genesis 3 you will not surely or certainly die the serpent said to the woman for god knows that when you eat from it your eyes will be opened and you will be like god knowing good and evil when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom she took some and ate it she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it in other words that decision to take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a decision to set themselves up as the arbiters of right and wrong true and false good and bad and we know exactly what happened next guilt shame, hiding, blaming, and eventually murder. We see this theme, and we see those same results played out again and again and again in Scripture, especially in the book of Judges, where the thesis statement of the book of Judges could very well be this, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. It's precisely humanity's attempt at godless autonomy that would make any Netflix miniseries on the book of Judges NC 17. If you've ever read the book of Judges, it is harsh. And until you understand that the reason for the harshness is to demonstrate the sinfulness of irreligion and the brokenness and the chaos of of irreligion, you can't figure out why in the world it's even in the Bible until you realize that's the theme. Now, we not only see irreligion worked out in Scripture, we see it worked out in art as well. In Breaking Bad, some of you guys are familiar with Breaking Bad, the miniseries that came out a while back, Walter White, chief bad guy, sets himself as the arbiter of good and evil, and as always happens, chaos and isolation ensue in his life and and in the lives of those that he loves. The award-winning series ends with an episode titled Ozymandias, where Walter White is likened to the forgotten and decrepit statue lying in the desert in Percy Shelley's poem. In this episode, White reads Shelley's poem as a requiem as a memento or a remembrance to his failed life of irreligion I'm going to read this poem Ozymandias I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert near them on the sand half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. It's a poetic response to irreligion, to setting someone setting themselves up as the king of kings. And we see this picture of this broken down, once mighty statue fallen into the desert. Unfortunately, the destruction of irreligion, it's not just limited to the pages of scripture. It's not just limited to the world of art. I'm guessing that each and every single person in this room this morning is intimately aware of the destruction of irreligion in their own lives and in the lives of those people that they love. We've seen the effects of drug, alcohol, and pornography addiction, right? We've seen the toll that takes. We've seen the broken marriages and shattered families caused by infidelity. We have brothers, fathers, mothers, and friends who are only shadows of who they might have been. So everyone recognizes that something is wrong with this world that we're living in, right? Everybody gets that. That's the first point. The activists and the prophets both agree the Bible in general, and Jesus in particular, specifically in the parable of the prodigal son, again, that Sam and Levi read earlier, argue that humanity has responded in one of two ways to the brokenness of the world, religion and irreligion. Religion attempts to bribe God, but inevitably results in bitterness and anger, right? If we're honest, there are a lot of us in this room that fit in that category. I know that I often do. Irreligion seeks to avoid God altogether, but it leads to chaos and ultimately leads to isolation. It doesn't work either. So what is the answer? How should we face the brokenness of the world? How should we face the brokenness of 2023? The answer is that there's a third way, and the third way is the gospel. In the book, Grace Changes Everything, which I've quoted a couple times already this morning, Keller writes the following, People tend to think that there are two ways to relate to God to follow Him and do His will, or to reject Him and do your own thing. But there are also two ways to reject God as Savior. One way is by rejecting God's law and living as you see fit. The other, however, is by obeying God's law and by being really righteous and really moral so as to earn your own salvation. It is not enough simply to think that there are two ways to relate to God. There are three, religion, irreligion, and the gospel. The question we should be asking then is, what is The gospel. We we hear that thrown around, that word thrown around a good bit, but what is it? The Bible gives us any number of different helpful uh, ways of viewing this, and I can give us several axioms to think about it. One is this, religion is, I obey, therefore I am accepted. The gospel is, I am accepted, therefore I obey. Let me read that one more time. Religion is, I obey, therefore I am accepted. The gospel is, I am accepted, therefore I obey. In other words, true pure morality flows out of the fact that God has saved and accepted us. Our morality isn't the cause of our salvation. Grace is. God's grace is. Another gospel axiom or gospel saying is this, the irony of the gospel is that the only way to be worthy of it is to admit that you're completely unworthy of it. We older brothers in the room need to hear that. In other words, God's gift of salvation is given to those who acknowledge not that we are worthy, but rather that we are unworthy. Yet another way to frame the gospel is that it is good news, not good advice. Let me say that one more time. The gospel is good news, not good advice. In fact, the Greek word euangelion appears 133 times in the New Testament, and it always means the proclamation of something that is already true, something that has already occurred regarding this word, D.A. Carson, a theologian, says this, because the gospel is, good, is news, good news, it is to be announced. That is what one does with news. The essential herald- heraldic element preaching is bound up with the fact that the core message is not a code of ethics to be debated, still less a list of aphorisms to be admired and pondered, and certainly not a systemic theology to be outlined and schematized, Though it properly grounds ethics, aphorisms, and systematics, it is none of these three. It is news, good news, and therefore must be publicly announced. Carson is creating a distinction here. Ethics, aphorisms, that is, proverbs or wise sayings, and systematic theology are all good. They're all necessary, but they're not the gospel. They are, however, rooted in the gospel, they should flow out of the gospel. Ultimately, the good news of the gospel has to do with God conquering sin and the brokenness of the world through Jesus at His initiative, because of His grace. Listen to the words of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here's the gospel that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at His coming, those who belong to Christ. In this 1 Corinthians passage, we see various elements of the good news of the gospel, that Christ died in order to forgive our sins. And let me just pause here for a second to say this. The question a lot of us wrestle with is, is there any way that God can forgive me? Right? That's a big thing, because we have a tendency to think He can forgive those sins, but not those sins. You know, that sin wasn't too bad. That sin is horrible. I don't think there's a way that God can forgive me for that you know, I haven't done that one too many times, but that one I've done so many times, there's no way God can forgive me for that. What you need to realize in your head is that when you sort of are creating sort of that, those balances on some scale, what you're doing is you're kind of saying, you're saying, was the blood of Christ, was the sacrifice of God's Son enough to cover over my sins? And what you're saying is, you're saying sometimes yes, but you're saying in other times no. In other words, you're saying that your sin is greater than God's sacrifice of His Son. And I just want you to know, I want you to hear loud and clear that what God says is that the life and the death and the resurrection of my Son is more than enough, more than enough to cover over all of your sins. That's part of the gospel, right? Not only does this 1 Corinthians passage talk about Christ dying to forgive us for our sins, but also that He rose from the dead, thus conquering death and guaranteeing resurrection to the dead for those who belong in christ and then finally paul in verse 10 makes it clear that this good news to us is all by grace in other words it is undeserved right this gift of salvation this gift of resurrection from this dead conquering death and sin for you it's not because you were good not because you were good enough not because you were more good than bad but rather god's grace comes to you in an unmerited fashion. Paul reaffirms that same truth in Ephesians 2, where he writes this. This is a famous verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The gospel leaves no room for boasting. The gospel leaves no room for arrogance. The gospel leaves no room for contempt Democrats and Republicans our salvation from sin death and corruption is a gift from God to us the gospel from start to finish is about God's grace it's about his mercy as an as a gift to undeserving people irreligion definitely yields chaos that's true Religion creates contempt. That's also true. But the fruit of the gospel is goodness. Listen to the following quote from Tim Keller The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. It's true for older brothers and younger brothers alike. Yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. This leads to listen to this, deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone. Let me say that one more time. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself nor less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less." So, what I am arguing and what Tim Keller is arguing and what Tertullian is arguing and what I think Jesus and Paul were arguing is that the way that we should face this broken world, this broken 2023, is through the gospel. If Keller's right in the above quote, and I think he is, then our lives should be marked by humility. Our lives should be marked by confidence, humility, because God adopted us and made us alive in him, not because of any particular good in us, but because of his sheer grace. If God responds with grace to our sin, how can we not in turn be people of grace to those people who have sinned against us? And the gospel also breeds confidence in us because we know that we are loved by God. How then can we not be people of love for those around us? My challenge to each of you here in 2023 is to be people who are deeply and radically changed, not by hard work, not by moral effort, not by self-actualization, but by the gospel. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that it brings light into darkness, Father, so that we can not only see who we are, more broken than we realize, but that we can also see who You are, Father, that You are like... um, an ancient Near Eastern father who hikes up his robes to run to his wandering son, that you are a father who also goes out to his self-righteous older son and implores him to come in. And Father, this morning, whether we are on one side or the other of those two camps, Father, I pray that we would hear your voice this morning, Father, imploring us Um, to receive your forgiveness, Father, and to enter into your house. Father, I pray that you would create humility and confidence, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, and self-control in us, Father, so that when people see us, they might know that we are deeply, deeply changed, Father, because we are your daughters, because we're your sons. I pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.